Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo. I'm joined, as always, remotely by co-host Joe Wolfond. Man, how's it going? Yeah, it's been for, quite a whirlwind, hey? For our loyal listeners, first of all, thank you for being loyal listeners. Second of all, I know that after our play-in preview podcast, we promised that we would do a playoff preview, a full playoff preview for Monday due to a cacophony of sound and audio issues uh, Sunday night, Monday morning, and honestly, also late Tuesday night, which is when we're recording this. We weren't sure when that next episode was going to get to you, but through some very uh, low-tech fixes, which included plugging headphones into different jacks. We've now found a fix, and here we are at 12.45 a.m. Eastern, technically on Wednesday morning, after every series has had a game played with the first time, I believe, in 17 years that both one seeds have dropped openers. And we've got a lot to talk about. So honestly, let's not even waste any time, given that we just wasted three days' worth of audio issues. And let's jump right into it. And here's how we're going to jump right into it. What we're essentially going to do is we're going to turn this into a little bit of going over what we saw in the series openers for each series, while also incorporating some stuff we would have talked about in what was going to be our playoff preview. So this will still kind of serve as a preview because we're early enough in the series. So with that all out of the way, you know our sob stories now. We're going to begin it like this. Joe Wolfond, you said at various points during the shutdown, and as we prepared for the bubble and the restart, that... Because so much time had gone by during the shutdown, the equivalent of an offseason, and in some cases, honestly, longer than an offseason, that you almost weren't even sure if you could treat it as an extension of the same season, and that you might have to just go by like what's happening in the bubble as almost like a new season because so much time had separated the two halves of the seasons, whatever you want to call them. So with that said, and given what you have seen from the Milwaukee Bucks, in this resumed season, and again, all the caveats apply. I know they had nothing to play for in the in the seeding games. They rested guys. But now they've dropped a playoff opener to a terrible Orlando team. Let's just be frank. Like, I know everyone's making the comparison with the fact, you know, the Raptors lost game one to Orlando last year. This is an Orlando Magic team without Jonathan Isaac and Aaron Gordon. This is a Magic team that started Markel Fultz, Evan Fournier, Earl Clark. James Ennis. <laughs> James Ennis and Nick Vucevic. That's the Magic team that took the floor today and beat the Bucks team that was on pace for 63 wins in a pro, if you prorate their numbers. So given what you saw from them in the seeding games, given what you saw from them today, and based on what you yourself said was going to be tough for you to even correlate what was happening in the bubble with what happened four plus months ago, do you even believe in the Milwaukee Bucks anymore? Yeah, I, I do. I still believe in them, but Why? I think because... I'm just like, I'm not, as much as, yes, you're right, I did say that we kind of have to treat this as a new season. I'm still not willing to throw everything I saw them do in the 63 games that they played um, before the shutdown to, to just throw that out the window. Am I considerably more skeptical of them now than I was pre-shutdown? A hundred percent. And... I think, look, like if you ask me, what do I think is the most likely outcome of that series with the Magic? It's that they win in five. And I wouldn't even be surprised if like every win that they have from here on out is by double digits. Like that wouldn't shock me. Now, I do think, I mean, as much as we can say they had nothing to play for in the seeding games, they had that one seed locked up. I mean, at some point, you still would have expected to see them like put together a pretty solid 48-minute effort. I think they did actually in that game against Boston, their first game in the bubble. That was easily their most impressive game. I think they played well for long stretches of that game against the Rockets that they wound up losing. But even if like you listen to what the players themselves were saying, like Kyle Korver had a, a kind of a bit of a diatribe about how yeah, we're sort of going through it right now, but we believe in our ability to turn. And like, I think a lot of people read that and it's like, yeah, we were kind of giving you the benefit of the doubt. And it almost seems like you guys aren't giving yourselves the benefit of the doubt. Like, so to hear that they were disappointed in the way they were playing made me rethink it a little bit because it wasn't as if they were just like, yeah, we're just sort of treating this as like a ramp up. We're not taking the results overly seriously. Like when playoff time comes, like we know that's when it's time to put pedal to the metal. They were all kind of like, 
treating it as if this was like some serious thing that they were actually like really trying to win games and were and and were down on themselves because of their inability to do so. So that was maybe like the first red flag for me. And then, I mean, you mentioned like they lose to Orlando and Orlando severely shorthanded without probably their two best defensive players. Honestly, they didn't have Michael Carter Williams either. I think that's their three best defensive players that they were missing and still managed to do a really good job of shutting down that Bucks offense without, you know, you look up and down that roster and I think, you know, they, they toggled through multiple different assignments. James Ennis took a lot of it. Vucevic spent some time guarding Giannis. Uh, Kem Birch spent some time guarding him, but it was really like they did it by committee. But like, there's no single player on the Magic who should have like any business guarding Giannis Antetokounmpo. And Giannis had a good game, but like the Bucks' complete inability to just like puncture that Magic defense, and then the extent to which they got shredded at the other end of the floor, like they didn't just lose this game; they got totally outclassed by a far less talented team. It, it it has to be a little bit concerning. Like to me, it's not concerning in the sense that I think that there's any chance that they're going to lose the series against Orlando. But if I'm looking ahead and I'm thinking like, you know, are there warning signs here? Are there red flags that I think might speak ill of their chances of coming out of the East? Then, yeah, I have to say like, I, I'm a little bit more skeptical today than I was yesterday. Yeah. And another key point i think is that Giannis played 34 minutes here we go again <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious man like and middleton I, played 31 what are you doing mike budenholzer look I, I know that i probably more than most was like extra hard on on bud after last year's playoffs and kept making jokes about it all season when the bucks were in toronto one time this year budenholzer made a statement about how they're just going to like play their game and and because it's worked for them. And at the time, I continued to make jokes about it because I was like, wow, this guy literally has not learned anything over the last year. But at this point, it's not even a joke. Like, what, are you uncomfortable deviating from your usual rotation management and minutes management? Like, time to get uncomfortable, man. Because as insanely good as your team has been and as insanely good as you've, a job as you've done in the regular season... If you flame out in like the second round, like, I don't know, is it that insane that Budenholzer would be on the hot seat? No, I don't think so. It might, I mean, it might be the first time in history a coach who's won back-to-back 60-plus win seasons would be on the hot seat. But like, that's how dire I think this situation is. Boggles my mind that a coach who should understand that and a coach who, for the most part, seems to like get it, doesn't get it in this way. How, how are you standing on the sidelines watching what happened today unfold? And not thinking, you know what, got to deviate from the plan a little bit. Might have to play on his 38 today. Like, I'm not saying playing him 45 in game one of the first round, but come on. Yeah, my my only explanation for that is they still don't consider losing game one to this Orlando team a big deal. And if they are playing the long game and kind of saving their bullets and hopefully do plan to, you know, when it really matters, play Giannis 44, 45 minutes a game, which they were not willing to do last year. I think he topped out at, what, 40, maybe 41 minutes in that Raptors series when a trip to the finals was literally on the line and they're watching it slip away. If they're not willing to do that this year, I don't know what to say. But, like, I, I again, I, like I said, maybe they don't have the benefit of the doubt anymore. But if I was to come up with an explanation for it, it's just the fact that they know they're way better than Orlando. They know they don't really have to sweat this loss too much. And... So ultimately for them, like they believe in their ability to come back and win this series without too much difficulty. And if they do, then they'll probably be glad in the big picture that they didn't burn Giannis out trying to win a game one where they were basically trailing the entire way. That can be a dangerous game though. Not because I think Orlando is any threat to even win another game, let alone win the series, but because it's not like this game was out of hand the entire way. The Bucks got back in it in the third quarter. I believe they might've taken the lead or they tied it maybe. They cut it to one. They cut it to one. And in the third quarter, there were still points where Giannis didn't play enough. I'd understand them playing the long game if it was like they were getting blown out all game and there were some points where it was just like, there's no point in this. We're waving the white towel, like the white flag. But that's not what was going on. This seemed to be just Budenholzer sticking to his usual rotations, not really seeming to have a sense of urgency in the moment. And again, I get 
your point about playing the long game and then not feeling threatened by, by Orlando. But every additional playoff game you have to play is a detriment in, in your quest for the championship because you don't know what if that extra game you now have to play results in an injury. Obviously, like none of us want to see that. You know, you almost don't even want to put it out there. But like those are risks that exist. Every extra minute of playoff basketball you have to play, every extra game of playoff basketball you have to play, no matter the opponent, is an extra game of risk. And when you've got as much on the line as the Bucks do, yeah, it just seems mind-boggling to me that Budenholzer didn't seem to have that sense of urgency in a playoff game, no matter who the opponent or what the level of threat was long-term. Yeah, and I, I think just overall, like the lack of preparedness in general was pretty shocking to me. And this, like I wrote about this game, and I, I give a lot of credit to Orlando because they played a hell of a game. And... James Ennis was fantastic. Vucevic was, you know, played one of the best games that I've ever seen him play. And I'm, I'm really happy for him because he yeah. had a rough go in the playoffs last year. I mean, it's like, it's his first trip to the postseason as, you know, like a team's number one option. And he'd had this fantastic season. Uh, like I thought he deserved to be on third team all NBA. Like he was really that good. You, you know, he was one of the 20 best players in the league. Leads Orlando to the playoffs and, and just gets stonewalled by Marcus All and the Raptors. And so for him to come out this year and have that kind of game one really just put an absolute hurting on Brooke Lopez, busted the hell out of that drop coverage with his pick and pops, shot the ball beautifully, but also got into the post, hit a bunch of baby hooks, hit mid-rangers, and they just there, there was nothing they could do with him. So like I, I give a, a ton of credit to Orlando for playing as well as they did defensively. Great game plan, stuck to it, executed it well. Help is all, always arriving at the nail on time, so Giannis isn't able to penetrate. So many Bucks possessions where they're just like, I mean, the Bucks thrive on those driving kicks, right? And, and I thought so many of their possessions just ended with them passing the ball around the perimeter and selling, s- settling for like a semi-contested three without even getting any kind of dribble penetration. And a lot of that had to do with Orlando's defense. Like they were building that wall against Giannis in transition. Their transition defense was incredible all game long. Kudos to them. There's just like like simple things where it's like, okay, so they're setting like staggered pin down for Terrence Ross, who is going to curl into the middle. And like two times in a row, they run it. And Ross goes right down the middle and takes a feed and gets like a, a wide open dunk and then a wide open layup. And Brooke Lopez is hanging close to Vucevic, who's who's setting like the second in those staggered screens because he's worried about Vucevic popping, justifiably so, because Vucevic has been lighting him up. But there's no help like coming over from the weak side. Nobody is coming to bump Ross on the roll. I mean, even Lopez, like he's got to at least like divert Ross Ross's path there and like then try and recover to Vucevic, but he doesn't do it. It's unclear if they're like supposed to be switching it or not. Um and there was like there was another play like that where like the magic run of Vucevic post up where the strong side corner is empty and the Bucks front Vuce in the post and it's like if you're gonna front Vuce in the post and there's nobody to help from the strong side corner like that you got to be aware of that and either like play a different coverage and not front him or you got to be ready to bring that help from somewhere else but they didn't and it's like Evan Fournier throws like the easiest entry pass of his life just like over Marvin Williams's head to Vucevic who gets a wide open layup. And stuff like that was happening all game. They, they just seemed completely unprepared for everything the Magic threw at them. And it was like really jarring to see like this eight-seeded team that is super banged up and has had to really adjust on the fly to not having you know, two of its top four players come into that game and be so much better prepared for it than this team that's supposed to be a championship contender. Until he proves me wrong. Like, let's just flat out say it. Mike Budenholzer is incapable of making an in-game or in-series adjustment, apparently. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if he, he's incapable, but like, I, I think I, that's that's what I'm saying. I, like, he probably he deservedly he deservedly wears the label of regular season coach right now, without and, a doubt. And that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't actually think, as a guy who's made it this far in the coaching world, that he is incapable. So then, like, that's what I'm saying. I don't prove me wrong. I don't understand if he is capable of it. Then why hasn't he done it? And, you know, you mentioned the lack of preparedness. Like, that's one thing, you know, I don't think I've ever been able to say about a Steve Clifford coach team, no matter how good or bad the team looks on paper. I don't think I've ever been able to say a Steve Clifford coach team has been unprepared for a game, regular season or playoffs. And, yeah, kudos to him and the Magic for the effort that they put out today. And 
also kind of makes you think like a guy like Clifford, I don't know. I hope at some point in his coaching career, he gets to coach like an actually really good talented team with some expectations. Cause it seems like he always ends up with these teams, whether it was in Charlotte or Orlando, where like the ceiling is low to mid forties, maybe in wins and like a few wins in the playoffs, maybe at best a second round. Of, I don't know. He's been around a long time and I've always respected the, the way his teams grind. And I'd like to see the kind of job he could do with a team with some real talent with all due respect to the team, the magic put on the floor today. Well, listen, maybe uh, if Mike Budenholzer flames out in the playoffs again and the Bucks decide to cut bait because he can't get it done in the playoffs, then... Then Steve Clifford can coach uh, the 19-win team that's remaining when Giannis <laughs> is out of town. Yeah, that's great. Um, all right, let's 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 shift over to the other 1-8 matchup that we just watched. In, in disbelief, I'd say. I mean, I had Portland actually winning two games in this series. I think you had them winning one. Uh, yeah, I had it going five. After watching one game, I think the series is going at least six games, maybe seven. The Lakers' offense has been a problem now. Oh, yeah. For, for a while. They ended up finishing 11th in offensive rating, but their performance down the stretch and in the bubble left a lot to be desired. I think they were the third worst shooting team in the seeding games. And then you look at the way that offense performed against a terrible defensive team in Portland. And uh, yeah, it was pretty jarring to see the Lakers just unable to really create looks or high efficient offense in general against this bad defense. And then when they did create the looks, I mean, you had KCP and Danny Green often bricking. Just a really discouraging game overall for a team with two absolute superstars who you think if they can score against anybody in the playoffs, it should be the Blazers. Really disappointing AD game. He was flat out bad. Um, He's been bad for like 85% of games in the bubble so far. Yeah, it's weird. I don't know like if there's something going on with him, but like he, he could not finish around the rim. Like he he missed so many layups and floaters and like he just had no touch. He, his jumper wasn't falling at all. Like really, his only his only reliable source of offense was to get to the free throw line and occasionally to just get runouts. Like he got a couple of runouts for dunks, and he got to the line a ton. He missed he, he missed that one runout where LeBron hit him at the end of the first half. LeBron grabbed this crazy yeah. rebound over Nurkic threw a touchdown pass to AD and he had to beat the buzzer. So it was a bit of a rush shot. Yeah. But- he couldn't get all the way to the rim. Like I don't blame him for that. And he had, to, he had to rush it, but like, whatever, like AD is always going to be able to beat people down the floor and get points that way. And he, he's always going to be able to get himself to the free throw line because he's just going to have either a size advantage or a quickness advantage over pretty much anybody who's guarding him. So it's a pretty good fallback to have. Like if your shot's not falling and your touch isn't there around the basket and you can just get yourself to the line 17 times, that's pretty good. But he had a rough game overall. Uh, I thought LeBron was brilliant, frankly. I mean, his his jump shot clearly isn't there right now either, but he still managed to get to the rim enough and just like his playmaking was next level as we've come to expect. But I mean, it was just like, particularly this game, it stood out because because of like how poor everybody else on the Lakers was, frankly. I don't know. We just keep waiting for their shooting to like regress to the mean. And they go 5 of 32 from 3 in their first playoff game. Like It's like resistant to analysis. Like What are you supposed to say? Like All you can keep saying is like they can't keep shooting this poorly. But then they keep shooting this poorly. So it's like the the margin for error just gets smaller and smaller. And like eventually they're just going to have to shoot better. Like That's just it. Like Danny Green can't keep... You know, not only is Danny Green just missing all of these open shots, but he's also just getting so hesitant. You can tell he's in his own head. He's turning down open shots. There's just like not a lot of guys on that roster who can pick up that slack. Like if Danny Green is not hitting from three, who is going to fill that role? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it, no, there's, just, there's not a lot of ton of options. And and the Blazers defense survived in this game, despite not really having a, a natural defender for AD, not having a natural defender for LeBron, because they just like packed the hell out of the paint. And, and it's just like, okay, like maybe you'll you'll beat us like in the first line of defense, but like you're just going to run into multiple more bodies as you try and get into the lane. And one way or another, we're going to force you to take jump shots and we don't trust your ability to make them. And they shouldn't, you know, nobody should trust the Lakers' ability to make jump shots at this point. They're not making them. The last eight NBA champions have finished top nine in three-point shooting in the regular season. The Lakers this year were 22nd. Yeah, it's worse. I mean, it's not that simple, but sometimes it is. You know, everything you mentioned about 
maybe the Bucs not needing to really feel threatened um, long-term yet because honestly, the Bucs could play as poorly as they did Monday and I'd still give them a pretty good shot of winning in five games. Like I think the talent disparity in that series is that large. The Lakers should feel short-term threat being down one nothing to this Blazers team. Yeah, Like the Lakers absolutely needing to win four of six games now against this Blazers team is like a bit of an uphill climb. The Blazers aren't exactly chump change. Damian Lillard's playing out of his mind, and Dame didn't even shoot the ball that well until the fourth quarter tonight. Time will run out on them pretty quickly. You know, like, we can sit here and say at some point the shooting has to get better. They can't keep shooting this bad. Well, it's like, if they literally have two more games this bad, then they're facing elimination. So, if I was a Lakers fan right now, I'm not saying... It's full-on panic mode, but it's getting pretty close. My feeling coming into this series, and the reason that I picked the Lakers in five, was like, I had these, there's these two competing elements in this series for me, right? One is that the Blazers have this massive backcourt advantage. And on the other hand, it's like the Lakers had this massive frontcourt advantage. I had more faith in the Lakers because I, I think that there is so much more that they can do to mitigate the disadvantage in the backcourt than the Blazers would be able to do in the front court. I do still feel that way. Um, like, you know, they, they're they still able to blitz Dame pick and rolls and get the ball out of his hands. And like, you know, should like their defense rotates really well and they have a lot of size and speed. And I think defensively, like they can plug those gaps in a way that I didn't expect the Blazers defense to be able to do to the Lakers offense. And again, like that's, I, I'm, I'm going to stick to that, but I, I do think the Lakers are in for a tough series and everyone's clamoring for AD at the five and I get it. They had a really nice run in the second quarter of this game where AD was playing the five and the LeBron AD pick and roll was really starting to sing. But they go to that in, down the stretch for I think like the last four minutes, 45 seconds of the game. And what did they get out of it? Like they... They, I, I can't remember a single time where they successfully ran a LeBron AD pick and roll in those last five minutes. That's absurd to me. Like, how many times have we talked throughout the year about that being the Lakers, not even secret weapon, well-known go-to weapon that they didn't necessarily have to use that often in regular season, but that it would kind of be a lower level version of when like the Steph KD pick and roll was a thing, right? And the Warriors would go to it when they absolutely needed to. And then it was like, well, good luck defending this. We're probably going to beat you now. And everyone just assumed all year that's what the LeBron AD pick and roll would be. And oftentimes it did look like that. And yeah, we talked about this off air before we recorded, but it's absurd to me that they didn't go to it down the stretch or at least when they tr- like they just didn't properly execute going to it. I don't know. But yeah, well, there are a couple of times and, and I don't think this is a bad approach either, but like they're trying to go at Dame instead. So like they had they, they would have like. Caruso or KCP screen for LeBron. But LeBron kind of like didn't go fast enough to actually force the switch. And he sort of allowed the Blazers to show and recover. And wound, like when that happens, he basically winds up passing the ball out to one of those Lakers guards. And then you just end up in a late clock situation where like Caruso or KCP is initiating. And, and this is just like the big problem is that LeBron and AD are amazing. And any lineup with those two guys in it should be really, really good. But they struggle. Like, I don't know, man, like Dwight Howard, I thought was probably their third best player in this game. And so to take him off the floor in order to go smaller with AD at the five, it's not necessarily beneficial for the Lakers because of the players that, you know, they have to replace their bigs with in those lineups. And like those players, frankly, aren't that good. If Danny Green's not hitting threes, then he's not that good. And KCP hasn't been that good. I actually thought Caruso had a really good game, but offensively, he didn't provide a whole lot but he was he was good defensively he was scrapping for loose balls he's a smart player but he's not somebody that you want initiating a possession in crunch time of a close playoff game you just don't so I don't know I mean like you know I've had doubts about this Lakers team all year I still have doubts about them I think they're gonna win this series but like hell like if uh if they wind up playing the Rockets next round. I don't know how much faith I'm going to have in them getting through that series. The last question I'll ask here before we move on to the other six series is you originally had the Bucks going to the finals and the Lakers losing in the conference finals to the mm-hmm. Clippers. I understand that we're talking about one game here and some seeding games to change your mind. As you sit here right now, if you had to start fresh with your predictions and, and make picks, would you still pick those two outcomes? Bucks winning the East and the Lakers getting to the conference finals. 
I would still pick the Lakers getting to the conference finals. For everything I just said, I, I still, I just, I believe in LeBron that much. And I do think AD has to be better. Unless there's something actually wrong with him, like physically, yeah. that yeah. he's dealing with that we don't know about, which is yeah. possible. But we like, talked last week about how no one knows what the hell LeBron was talking about when he talked about some off-court issues, right? And right. Not that I'm trying to plant the story here, but we we just don't. We don't know what he was talking about. And when you see the team struggling like this, it does make you wonder, like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. So, but, but like, assuming that he, he's physically okay, then he'll be better. And I, I think they should get to the conference finals. I, I still don't think that they're beating the Clippers, but I would pick them to get there. I think at this point, I would take the field in the East over the Bucks. Like, if I had to pick one team, I think I might still pick Milwaukee, but... Would I pick them to make the finals at this point? I think I would I would just take the field over them because I, I think that Boston, Miami, and Toronto all look really good. And I think any of those teams could beat them. So Yeah. Honestly, I struggle based on what we've seen from Milwaukee in the last few weeks now. Like I struggle to see Milwaukee even beating Miami man four or seven times. We'll see, man. Like I my my thought and my hope, honestly, not because like I have any particular affinity for this Bucks team, but just because I think they were unbelievable this season. You know, while the, the regular season as we knew it was actually going on. And I like to see teams actually like reach their ceiling and, and play their best basketball. And so to me, it would be a bummer if like that team that we got to know is just gone now. I think that would kind of suck. So I would like to think that this is the kick in the pants that they need to just like ratchet back up and get back to that level. And maybe they can't for any number of reasons, you know, maybe because Bledsoe had COVID-19 and is like, just hasn't fully recovered from it yet. And like they're whatever, like juju that they had going on has run out and they can't get it back. Talk to the 2014 Pacers about that, man. They were, wasn't that team like 30 three and eight or something or 32 and nine at the halfway point of the season. And just like, yeah, they got up to, I think 46 and 13 was where they were at. Okay. So so they were almost on the same kind of run and obviously not as talented because, you know, as great as Paul George was and as great defensively as that team was, they weren't, it it wasn't Giannis and this defense, but their offense was never as good as the Bucks offense was, but But it's, it's honestly like not the worst comparison because defensively that team was super similar in both how they played, how they protected the rim and um, like the the sort of personnel that they had, like they didn't have anybody like Giannis, but like Roy Hibbert served very much the same role that Brooke Lopez serves for this Bucks team. And it was pretty jarring how quickly it fell apart for that team. And Brooke Lopez had a really garbage game today. Awful. Like this was one, like maybe the single worst game I've seen him play all season. And if he like he's not going to be that bad, but like if he can't be as good, and he also shot 0 4 from three, which is big because like if if he's not serving as like a viable three-point threat this is where i'll remind people that as much credit as we all gave and rightfully so brooke lopez for transforming himself into the floor spacer he had become and how valuable that was for milwaukee this is where i remind you that he shot i believe in the series against the raptors like 29 percent from deep and i believe he shot about 29 or 30 percent from deep this season and hasn't shot the ball well in the bubble so far so like we're looking at like over a year now where he has not been an actually good shooter he's just been a threat because he was a good shooter and he's still shooting them and so teams are respecting him well that's the important thing at the end of it i mean it it is important that he shoots them well but i think it's more important that that opponents respect that shot he's going to make some of them man and for now, they still are for the most part, but like that might change if if he can't knock him down. And so, look, like he is so vital to that team. If he can't get back to the level that he was at during the regular season, then they're in trouble without a doubt. And again, so like I, I choose to believe that like they're gonna have a wake up call, or they just had a wake up call, and they'll come back out and run roughshod over Orlando for the rest of the series and will you know get back to something resembling the level they were at and it will take something special to beat them and i do think miami is capable of reaching that level i've been really impressed with them even though i've been down on them all year they've played great boston has really impressed me toronto has really impressed me like i think i it would still shock me if miami came out of the east it wouldn't shock me if any three of boston toronto or milwaukee did that's where i'm at with that but yeah i mean it's it's definitely interesting and, 
you know, we, like you said, we talked about this and we didn't really know what to expect and we didn't know if it was going to look like a continuation of the season that got suspended back in March or a whole new season. And I don't know, in a, in a lot of ways, it's veered more toward the latter than the former, right? Yeah. Uh, not only for those top teams, but for teams like the Blazers, who in terms of both like how they're playing their personnel, like in a lot of different ways are completely different teams than they were. So I think it's it's made it uh, certainly very fascinating to watch because uh, it does feel just like a whole new season where everything is really, really difficult to predict. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. 11 turnovers aside, given the absolute brilliance we saw from Luka Doncic in Game 1 of Clippers-Mavs, and how competitive that game remained, even after Kristaps Porzingis was ejected on a horrendously soft second technical. Did it, not that I think the Mavs have a chance at the upset, but did it change your mind at all about how competitive the Mavs might be able to make this series? Or do you maybe see that as more of the peak for the Mavs in this series? I didn't think they were just going to get flattened or anything like that. Like I picked the Clippers to win in five games and I expected most of those games to be competitive games. I didn't think they were just going to be blowouts. Uh, I think I would probably still pick the Clippers to win in five. Just because, I mean, you can see, like, yeah, Porzingis got ejected and and the Mavs were in that game until the end. But it did really take, like, a Herculean performance from Doncic to keep them close in that game. And I just think the Clippers have so many answers. You know what I mean? Like, outside of Doncic, like, yeah, Porzingis has been great, but, like, in terms of playmaking, like if they can just like find a way to shut off the tap um, and, and like limit what Luca can do and even just like forcing him into 11 turnovers is a, a, like a, a good way to do that. As much as like you pointed out, like his totally used possessions, even factoring in the turnovers in terms of the points that he scored or created with assists was like what, 66 points on 51 used yeah, possessions? It like still it still worked still out complete, to like 1.29 points per possession. It was still completely insane, but... I do think there's more that they can do with him. I feel like they can get more aggressive with the blitzes on him and amp up the pressure to get the ball out of his hands. And if they're able to do that, I just don't really trust that Mavs supporting cast to create a whole lot. Like there's just not a whole lot of playmaking. And like there isn't, I guess they're shooting there with like Seth Curry. Seth Curry has been really good this year. And honestly, Hardaway Jr. has been good this year. But I just, I don't know. I just think the Clippers have too many weapons and too many answers for Dallas can do. I think, you know, as much as, like I said, I admire the game. Doncic had and and even the fact the Mavs were able to keep it competitive after the Porzingis ejection and honestly the fact they were even able to keep it competitive after digging a 16-point hole in the first quarter uh blowing a 14-point lead later in the first half yeah they had like a 30-point swing in the span of like 12 minutes yeah so I, I think it was overall an impressive debut for this Mavs core in the playoffs together um and and I also had them winning in five so I still think I'll give them a game but I'm with you in that all that aside, I don't really think it changes much in how poor of a matchup this is for them and and can't see them winning more than one game. Harrell is a really important part of the Clippers and he didn't look all that great, which is definitely to be expected because he hasn't like he hasn't been in the bubble and he's missed, you know, a bunch of practice and conditioning time and like for him to just come back in and get thrown into a playoff game, like I don't think you would expect him to look good. I don't know how long it's gonna take for him to get up to speed, but and also, I don't like. I don't necessarily. They don't need him in this series. They will need him in the playoffs over the long haul. But but him not being totally right definitely takes away uh, you know a potential weapon for the Clippers in, in terms of their ability to sort of match up with the Porzingis at center lineups, I guess. But also the Mavs just like I don't know, man. They they just like don't have great options for guarding PG and Kawhi. Kleba is taking such a big chunk of the Kawhi assignment. Like he's probably their best option on Kawhi, honestly. Like uh, I, I, I sort of figured it would be Finney Smith and Finney Smith is obviously going to spend a ton of time on Kawhi as well, but he doesn't really have the strength to hang with Kawhi. 
Whereas Kleba just like has that size and that strength and like his foot speed for a guy his size is okay. Um, pretty good actually. Uh, but again, it's like if that's your best option, I, I don't know, man. I just, I don't think they can, they can keep the games competitive. I just don't think that they can win more than one of them. Maybe they can win two of them. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it went six, but, um, but again, like I've said this before, I think this Dallas team has such a bright future. Like this is just a learning experience for them at the end of the day. So the two seed in the Eastern Conference, Kawhi's former team, the defending champion Toronto Raptors, built a 33-point lead against the Nets in the first half. Brooklyn cut it all the way down to eight or nine, something in that range. And then the Raptors still pulled away down the stretch to win by 24. Wire-to-wire, dominant win. I will say that I thought Karis LeVert did a really nice job of adjusting and making plays for others. I mean, a lot of times with younger scorers or, you know, guys maybe making their playoff debut as like a number one option, which on this team Levert is with all the injuries they have, you often see guys start forcing it when they struggle or face playoff pressure for the first time, face doubles, triples sometimes. And I thought Levert did a really nice job of kind of staying with it, staying patient, um, finding his teammates when the doubles came. And... Still, you know, finding a way to have a productive game. I think he ended with like 13 or 15 assists, something like that. And just all around, I thought was pretty solid. And and that was encouraging to me. Like if you're looking for any silver lining for Brooklyn, the fact that they were able to adjust to the early Raptors pressure, Levert was able to really impact the game there for, for a good chunk, like through the second and third quarters. They made a bit of a game of it at some point in the second half and, and obviously just didn't have the horses to finish. But yeah, if you're looking for any silver lining on from Brooklyn's perspective, even long-term, if you want to look at it that way, it's... Karis Levert's a, a player, man. Yeah, I think a, and a lot of people have pointed out the, the big question there is just how ultimately it's all it's all going to fit um, when Kyrie and KD are back. And I think those are legitimate questions because he is clearly at his best playing on the ball. Like he has proven to be a really effective playmaker. And I, I like his dribble drive game. Like it's super shifty and unpredictable and arrhythmic. And I think, you know, he, he sees the game really well. He makes passes that you don't expect. And, and all that is like fantastic, but the shooting still hasn't really come around. You know, we've seen it, I guess, in spurts, but like if he's playing off of the ball, is he providing enough value? And I mean, one thing I've heard suggested is like he would be a killer six man for that team. I don't know if he'll be happy necessarily with that role, but it's nothing but encouraging, obviously, for the Nets to see him playing this way and to see what he is capable of doing as like a leading man, basically, you know, granted the leading man of not a particularly good team, but but he has been great. And I'm really curious to see what that looks like next year, if he is part of their long term plans, if, you know, they decide to use him as a trade chip, ultimately, uh, or if they decide to build their team around him and have two really, really good trade chips to use to get the pieces to surround him with. One interesting thing to watch in this series too is that Brooklyn was a heavy three-point attempt team all season. I think they were top five in three-point attempt rate. They just weren't making them. And uh, this kind of open style of play, Jacques Vaughn's got them playing. In the bubble, they were actually one of the better shooting teams. And so you know, if you're looking for a way for them to stay in games or maybe even steal one, like I think you had Raps in five, didn't you? Yeah, I gave them a game, but I, as I wrote in our predictions piece, I, I sort of gave them a game because I felt bad about treating them like a joke and saying that they were just going to get dummied by every team that they played. So, so, so you I manufactured I, a win in your mind to... I said I, I thought I owed it to them to grant them the dignity of a gentleman's sweep. Oh, again, I will say that if if they catch fire from deep one game, you know, as they are wont to do in the bubble anyway, they'll have a shot because that's, you know, they shot themselves back into the game against a really good Raptors defense that defends the three-point line well because Pascal Siakam and OG Ananobi, among others, but chiefly those two guys, cover an insane amount of space and are able to recover the shooters. But yeah, if, if Brooklyn can catch fire from deep, you know, once or twice in this series, maybe they make another game interesting or steal one. But for the most part, I just think... The Raptors are too ruthless defensively to really allow themselves to be threatened in this series, in a game. You watch the way they were defending on some of those late second quarter possessions, up 33. It's just hard to see a team with as little talent as Brooklyn has putting even three good quarters together against that defense. Yeah, no, I mean, the Raptors are relentless, man. And 
I don't think they're going to be as generous as I was in, in granting that gentleman's sweep. I'll say that. Yeah. Like I, I, I don't think the Raptors feel bad about the way Pound the Rock treated Brooklyn. We talked about some of the maddening things that unfolded for the Lakers and Bucks, and watching those two teams drop game ones. The Sixers are not the favorite in that series, but you want to talk about just like frustration watching the same issues continue to pile up for a team over and over and over again. They turned the ball over 18 times. They seemed literally incapable of dumping the ball into Joel Embiid and completing simple entry passes for most of that game. I know you've been on the train for a while that the Sixers just lack a real initiator. I mean, even Simmons, like he he's a great playmaker, but that's different than being a consistent initiator because uh, he's not really great in the half court. But, you know, you've been adamant that basically since they botched the Fultz situation, they don't really have a true point guard or true playmaker to... Right. I, I wouldn't even say that they botched the Fultz situation, just that the Fultz situation got botched by like a series of circumstances <laughs> beyond anyone's control. All right, fair enough. I think the Sixers played a hand there. But as you watch this team, like unable to throw a simple entry pass into Joel Embiid. <laughs> what were your thoughts? My thoughts are that I was not at all surprised. I mean, that's they this team's basically been showing us who they are all year. It was not realistic anyway. Like Embiid's going to eat in the post in this series. Like he, he had a great start to that game. He petered out toward the end of the game. Ultimately, I still think he had a good game and played well out of the post. Like He'll be good. He'll be successful doing that throughout the course of this series just because of the sheer size advantage that he has over basically any defender that Boston can throw at him aside from Ennis Cantor. And he has other advantages over Cantor. So I, I just don't think that it's realistic for them to like win a series that way. Like you can't like Boston is still has all these like long, fast, rangy defenders and they can still just like swarm the post and recover out to shooters really well. And as much as like this idea of, yeah, okay, Embiid in the post surrounded by four shooters is really nice in theory. The Sixers shooters like aren't that good. And so I, I don't think like the, those Celtics defenders are really going to have any qualms about just like sending copious amounts of help. And if they get burned on the back end, like they can't rotate fast enough. And I don't know, Josh Richardson gets like an open three Every now and then, like, they will live with that. And the other thing, I think, is they turn the ball over a lot when they're when they're playing out of the post, whether it's on those entry feeds that they've struggled so much with or whether it's Embiid or, or Horford trying to pass out of the double teams in the post. You're going to have success scoring the ball, but you're also going to turn it over a lot. And that is why, you know, toward the end of the game, they didn't trust it. Like, they weren't throwing the ball out of the post at the end of the game. It was Alec Burks initiating the offense. And it's like, this is what... Like you shelled out, you know, $110 million to Al Horford, $180 million to Tobias Harris so that Alec Burks can initiate your offense in the fourth quarter of a playoff game. Like something is broken here. And I don't like Simmons being there would, would make such a huge difference for their defense. Like they got picked apart by Jason Tatum and Simmons not being there, I think had a lot to do with that. I don't know how much he would help their half court offense. Zero. Like, well, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'd go quite that far, but it's possible. What do they do? I just don't know what they're supposed to do. Yeah, and that's why, you know, as much as even I've dumped on Embiid and Simmons more specifically, and as much as you can dump on those two guys, the front office has not done them any favors. They're paying Horford, Harris, and Richardson, even though Richardson's contract's fine, but they're paying those three guys like $80 million this year go into a series where Embiid has this unbelievable physical advantage and they can't even dump the ball into him. The problem really is that they don't have enough other ways to get him involved in their offense. Right. You know what I mean? Like he, and part of this is on Embiid, honestly. Because 100%. I, because he, to me, like could be such a good role man in the pick and roll. And for, I think, a number of reasons, one of which is that like when he is playing with Simmons or when he's playing with Horford, it's hard for him to roll to the basket and like find that space to do it. And oftentimes he ends up popping. And it's he hasn't really been in a situation where that's been an easy thing for him to do. But I also just like don't think that he's particularly had the will to do that. He's wanted to play out of the post more often than I think he's wanted to be involved in the pick and roll. I think... 
you know, one thing that was really effective last year is like when he they ran so many dribble handoffs with him and Redick, right? And so many of those dribble handoffs could essentially turn into pick and rolls because you'd have the screen defender lunging out at Redick. You have two on the ball, and Redick is really good at reading that and making that pocket pass off of the handoff. And that got Embiid rolling downhill in space a lot last year. And they just like, they don't have a dribble handoff threat like that that's going to like require that kind of defensive attention. And those plays have sort of fallen by the wayside. And that's why I've said, like, obviously Jimmy Butler was a much bigger loss for the Sixers than JJ Redick was. But I think I might say that for like Embiid personally, at least at the offensive end, that Redick was a, a bigger loss. And I, I think we've really felt that this year. I think it's been difficult for him to to not have that release valve. And also, obviously, like the fact that they just like don't have a pick and roll point guard makes it difficult for him to play like the other end of those pick and rolls. So there's a lot of different factors conspiring against him. I, I do think part of it is on him, but also I just like this is just a monumental task that I don't think any big man in the league right now or even in you know the past 10 years really would be up for to try and drag the Sixers team past a really talented Celtics team strictly by just like dominating them in the post that's just not how the game is played anymore no it's not you mentioned the talented Celtics team they lost some of that talent for apparently about the next four weeks because Gordon Hayward suffered a pretty bad ankle sprain that is going to have him probably out until either late in the second round or if the Celtics make the conference finals. I don't think it's going to matter much against the Sixers. Might be somewhat of a significant blow in a potential 2-3 matchup in the second round with the Raptors because I think one of the advantages, and we've talked about this all year and you've been high on it as well, one of the advantages Boston would have in that matchup is that they've got more pure shot creation, uh, especially pull-up shot creation. And I know they'll they'll still have a ton of it with Jason Tatum, uh, Kemba Walker, and Jalen Brown, but... Still, you lose one of those weapons in a potential matchup that we both think is basically as tight and evenly matched as it gets. Like that stuff adds up. Without a doubt. Like Hayward's been really good this year. And he's taken more of a back seat. Like all three of those guys, Kemba, uh, Tatum, and, and Jalen Brown have had bigger roles in the offense. And Hayward has been more of like a second side attacker. Um you know, attacking off of the catch, off of scramble situations, like attacking, you know, getting downhill. But like, it's rare, I think, for him to be the guy who's like initiating the possession and like the first guy touching the ball. Um, I feel like he's been better um, sort of attacking from the weak side, essentially. Um, and and that's been a good role for him. He's been good. Uh, losing that is tough for them. Like they lose you know, a guy who's been scoring really efficiently, whose playmaking, I think, has been really impressive this year, who's defended at a pretty high level, you know, a really important part of of their closing lineups. So I definitely think that that is a big deal. Like, I, I, again, I I agree. I don't think it's going to hamper their ability to put this Sixers team away. But in a second round series against the Raptors, where I think the margins are going to be really slim, that's a big loss. Like it, it just is. The other thing, I mean, it's, it's also just a question of like who replaces him in the rotation, right? Because like as deep as the Celtics are, they're kind of thin, man. This is what I mean. Like they're deep in terms of like their top six. Every player in their top six is like really, really good. So they have that kind of, they have depth of great players. You know what I mean? Like I don't yeah. think there is a team in the league whose sixth best player is as good as Marcus Smart. You know what I mean? Or whose fifth best player is well I think the Raptors I think the Raptors are in that conversation. The Raptors are in that conversation. True. And maybe the Clippers are in that conversation too. But if anything, that almost proves the point of why it's going to be especially troublesome to lose a guy like Hayward in a matchup with the Raptors because Mm. you're talking about a team that beyond that top six, I think is where you were going, is maybe not as deep as some people think. And now you're taking away one of those top five guys against one of the few teams that actually can match them in terms of top end talent. They have this, this depth of good players, but like beyond their top six, like there isn't a whole lot there. So I, I don't like who takes Hayward's minutes in the rotation. You know what I mean? Wanamaker will, will see more time. I'm sure Grant Williams, I guess. Like, yeah. Whoever it is, it's a massive downgrade. So, I mean, shit, like if, 
<laughs> like if you'd asked me before before Hayward got hurt, and I know we've sort of like we've gone back and forth on this. I've waffled a little bit, and I basically the only thing I've been consistent on is I think this series would go seven games and would be just like a knockdown drag out like absolute classic. And at one point, I said I thought I would just like give the advantage to whichever team at home court, and that at a neutral site I would give like the Celtics the slightest of edges. Then I. Swung back to giving the Raptors that edge in this neutral setting. I think the way that the Celtics were playing and, you know, obviously the way that they uh, flattened the Raptors in that that seeding game matchup, I, I might have given the Celtics like the slightest of edges before Hayward got hurt. And with Hayward out, I don't know that I could do that. All right. So we, we've got three series that we haven't talked about yet. We're running a bit short of time here. Um, is there one thing from one of the other three series, whether it be Rockets, Thunder, Jazz Nuggets, or Heat Pacers that jumps out at you that you need to discuss? I mean, we we should probably discuss the fact that Donovan Mitchell dropped 57 points. Third, <laughs> third highest postseason scoring game in history. Ever. Yeah. Uh, and, and I thought the way that he got those points was interesting. Um, I mean, he was unbelievable in every way, like pull-up shooting, getting downhill, but... I was already worried about the Nuggets defense. Like that's why before Conley, you know, left the bubble before we knew that was going to happen. I, I actually had that series going seven games. I still had the Nuggets coming out of it, but I just thought it was going to be a lot closer than some people seem to think because this Nuggets defense has been really poor. They really miss Gary Harris defending at the point of attack. And I, I just felt like the you know the the jazz offense like as sort of janky as it's looked uh, inside the bubble without Bogdanovich, um, the the way that they attack you know specifically just like running repeated pick and rolls, I, I thought they had a chance to really take advantage of that Nuggets defense, which they absolutely did in that game one, and they did it by I mean attacking Jokic, who did not look great in pick and roll coverage. And surprisingly, like, so the Nuggets all season in the last two years, really, like the way that they've played pick and roll defenses, they have been pretty aggressive, bringing Jokic up high, either bring him up to the level of the screen, hard show, straight up blitz. But it it's not often that you see them drop him back. And they basically just dropped him back for that entire game. And it didn't work at all. Like Mitchell just totally traffic coned him, getting downhill and attacking him in space. And um, I actually thought like the Nuggets had way more success defensively when Plumlee was in the game because Plumlee actually was coming up in hard hedging and that made it a little bit more difficult for the Jazz to attack. But like anytime they put Jokic in pick and roll, I thought they had a lot of success. Then in that fourth quarter, they're just repeatedly going at Michael Porter Jr. Honestly, they were going at him all game, man. Yeah, but I think they re- like they really amped it up yeah. in that fourth quarter where like they were straight up waving off go bear screens in order to just have Porter Jr.'s man come up and screen for them and they could try and force that switch. And it was reminiscent to me of like what they did to Mello in that series against the Thunder a couple of years ago. Like, and Porter, he, he just like couldn't hang. And whether, whether it was him getting screened, which he did an absolutely miserable job of getting around screens. I'm not exaggerating uh, when I say, I don't know if I've ever seen a player show less effort in a playoff game, trying to fight through screens. There was one play where I'm pretty sure that it was Gobert screening him. And it was like, he literally just like hugged Gobert. Like he, he was massaged his quad. He him. massaged his thigh. He was trying to, and like, if, if the purpose was to switch, then I guess that would make sense. He's trying to make, you know, keep contact with Gobert and, and let Jokic switch on to Mitchell. But that clearly wasn't the coverage. And you could see Jokic, barking out for him to get over the screen and he didn't and then Mitchell I think actually it was Ingles on that play just like splashed a wide open pull-up three um so he did a really poor job fighting through screens and then when he got switched onto Mitchell there wasn't a whole lot he could do because as you pointed out he was like never in a defensive stance he's just like a really upright defender um and, and maybe that has something to do with the back issues that he's dealt with but he just like is unable to get low enough I think to stay in front of shiftier guards and and maybe that'll change at some point in time. But basically the Nuggets had to put him on the bench for the last two, three minutes of regulation and all of overtime because he was getting targeted every time down the floor. 
Yeah, they went with Monte Morris over him for the last 632 of the game. Yeah, um, yeah there was one play in the fourth quarter where he was defending Ingles, and Ingles goes to set a screen for Mitchell, and and Porter tries to tell Torrey Craig to switch. So now Porter's going to take Mitchell, and Craig's going to go with Ingles, except while he's telling him to execute that switch, he's just like facing the completely wrong direction, and Mitchell easily turns the corner and starts going downhill. And immediately Craig realizes this. And so now Craig has like executed the switch and is also now trying to recover to Mitchell while Porter's just standing in no man's land, literally looking around so confused at the top of the arc. And it en- that ends up with like a Nuggets foul and Mitchell scoring two points uh, on free throws. And I mean, we're talking about all this, the Nuggets end up winning the game, but like those are the things where Porter's play in the seeding games, I think excited a lot of people. Like, I, you know, it was a great story and it was one of those things where you could say well if this guy plays this well like maybe this raises their ceiling a little bit are they this sneaky contender but you also got to remember about the other side of the floor and if the guy especially in a postseason series when coaches are game planning for one team and and one team's weaknesses like you're not going to be able to have Michael Porter Jr. on the floor in high leverage moments and so I think that's something people forget a lot of times when they see young players you know breaking out and think that maybe they can be this like X factor or swing guy in a big series between two good teams. Like it's a lot of times it's not that easy because he's going to get played off the floor for reasons. You saw Michael Porter get played off the floor. I don't have anything to add to that. I mean, that's, that's the reality of of the situation right now. And I I think we'll see as this series goes along, whether he is able to stay on the floor in crunch time or whether the Nuggets just so, sort of um, have to slowly scale back his minutes. But I think I, I think the Jazz, honestly, are one of the best teams in the league at actually like finding those weak spots in opposing defenses and really picking at them. And Mitchell deserves a ton of credit for the way that he played. Like, he was unbelievable. Um, Jamal Murray was freaking incredible in his own right in that game, especially in the fourth quarter in overtime. And uh, he and Jokic just... Like, the, the Jazz, for their part, like, didn't have any answer for the Murray Jokic pick and roll or pick and pop. Like they couldn't do anything with it. And those two guys both like just completely took over the game in overtime. Um, And I don't know, man, like the jazz, like they get that game from Mitchell. They still can't win. Like I, I really think that they needed to have that game. Like if they wanted to have any hope in this series, they really needed that one. And I guess there's like Conley's back in the bubble now. He's got a quarantine for a few days. Uh, I don't know when he's going to be back. Might be able to play in game three, apparently. Which would be huge because there's like a real compounding effect there for the Jazz. Not only do they lose Conley, who's been playing really well in the bubble, but they're so thin behind him. And so him not being there means that like they have to like play Emmanuel Moutier, um, who's really not been good for them. Um, and they just like don't have a lot of guard depth behind him. So... Uh, like their rotation was already thin. Their their bench uh, was already pretty poor this season. So to be without him or Bogdanovich, like everybody has to move up in the chain and it stretches everybody pretty thin. And, you know, w- having dropped that game one, that was very winnable for them. I mean, Donovan Mitchell takes that eight second violation when they had a chance to go up oh. six points, like pretty devastating loss for them. Honestly, added to the list of devastating Jazz losses against the Nuggets this season. They played four times this year. The Nuggets have won all four times. One of them was by three points. One of them was by six points. One of them was in double overtime. One of them was in overtime. So, yeah, like that double overtime game, obviously that barn burner during yeah, the seeding stage, but, right? Which like it is incredibly hard to have two teams fairly evenly matched like that play four games that closely and have one team win all four of them. Yeah. I don't know. Do you think that actually says anything about these two teams or you think it's just a fluke? Maybe a little column A, a little column B. Like I think a lot of it is small sample size flukiness, but I also think some of it is when, as happens in the NBA, especially like when two teams are maybe that evenly matched or seemingly that evenly matched and play close games, you can often rely on, you know, the true star talent or the best player between those two teams to make the difference. And is either of us really arguing that Nikola Jokic is the best player on those two teams and like by a healthy margin, you know, with all due respect to Rudy Gobert's impact on a game and Donovan Mitchell and the performance he just had, I think by and large, you'd say Jokic is comfortably the best player in that series. He didn't even have to be in the fourth game, but right. yeah, if, if there is a separating factor in, in a close matchup like that, I would say it's Jokic's and, advantage. And in that matchup, I mean, look, Gobert is a generational defender, but 
the things, and it's not that he's not good at like one-on-one defense or not a good post defender, but I think the things that make him such a special defender are like the, the containment in the pick and roll, the way he is able to like stop dribble penetration, his ability as a helper at the rim. And against somebody like Jokic, who like you just can't really do anything to stop Jokic, right? Because it's not like he needs to get super deep post position to score. He just needs to get within like 16 feet of the basket, basically, to get to like whether it's that ridiculous one-legged fadeaway or his little push shot, um, his up and unders. It's like there's not there's not a whole lot that Gobert can do, and especially the fact that like Jokic can stretch him out to the three-point line and hit um, you know two or three threes in that game as well. Like the things that Gobert excels at don't really do anything to deter Jokic. So um, I think it's like you kind of like mitigate one of the Jazz's theoretical big advantages in any matchup in that way. Like the fact that Gobert's impact is just blunted um, because in one-on-one situations, like Jokic can still just eat is, I don't know. I, th- I feel like that gives the Nuggets a big leg up. The only two series we haven't touched on, uh, Pacers Heat and Rockets Thunder. All due respect to your Indiana Pacers. The only thing I have to say from game one there, because we're running out of time, is Jimmy Butler is prime time. Like, Man, he goes like the entire season basically just like never shooting threes. And then just when he decides to, because he really wants to embarrass TJ Warren, he hits two back-to-back like right in TJ Warren's face, back-breaking threes in the fourth quarter. Like, just giving the illusion that he can do that whenever he feels like it. And and it, he he makes it seem like that's true. Um, and I know, like, Butler's never been out of the second round of the playoffs, but he just, like, he has that it factor. You know what I mean? Like, he's an absolute boss. And despite the fact that there are these holes in his game now and the fact that his jumper is kind of falling apart. Like, I don't know. I just like, how can you not have faith in that guy to come through in a big moment? You mentioned like he's got that it factor. He, like I said, he's prime time. Like there are certain stars, superstars that have that. And that in big games and big moments, you just know you can go to and count on honestly on both sides of the ball. And okay. He's not LeBron or Kawhi or healthy Katie. He's not in, in like that stratosphere. But when you go to that tier below those guys, there's not many guys I would rather ha- want on my team in those moments than Jimmy Butler because he's prime time. Like he, th- these are the moments he literally lives for. Yeah, you know, and um, then he goes back to his room and sells twenty dollar coffee to his peers and rivals. <laughs> literally, people check out that story; it's pretty funny. And then calls security on himself for working yeah. out all night. Yeah, um, yeah. Bam Adebayo is also freaking incredible in that game, and the Pacers. Man, like the Heat's ability to switch, the Pacers just like really struggle to gain any advantages. You know what I mean? And like outside of Brogdon, who I thought did a good job kind of attacking so, like certain switches or at least like some seams um, in the Heat defense and like able to get downhill and get to the rim. Like with, with Oladipo being in the state that he's in, and obviously he only played like four minutes in this game because he got scratched in the eye, but like even before that, like he's not the same explosive guy that he was a couple of years ago. And I pray that he will get back to that point, but I don't think it's going to happen this year. Um, there's just not a whole lot that they can do against his heat defense. Like they don't have enough advantages. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up uh, Miami switching because the last series that we haven't talked about, uh, one thing that like popped out to me in that Thunder Rockets matchup and I never really thought of it before. And then I saw it kind of unfolding, saw a couple of people tweet about it. And then I was like, why didn't I really think of that before? But because of the Rockets, like size issues, they're self-inflicted size issues. Like they wanted to play this way. We know they're a switch everything team. And it's kind of interesting to see that against the Thunder, who obviously rely on a lot of screens for their guards and especially with Steven Adams, because the Rockets might be like one of the teams uniquely qualified to defend against that and not really be screened to death by them because they're switching everything. And it's weird. Like obviously the Rockets did not design their team to stop this version of the Oklahoma city thunder, but they end up matching up with them. And I think they might actually be uniquely qualified to stop this version of the Oklahoma city thunder. Yeah. I mean, I made a point 
So like I, I picked the Thunder in seven and I'm definitely rethinking that pick now. Like I'll stick with it for the sake of consistency. And like, I, I think it would be hard for them to play worse than they played in this game. Like I, I think they will be better. But one of the reasons was like they're, I think second or maybe third in the league in isolation scoring efficiency this season. All of uh, Paul, Shea, uh, Gallo, and Schroeder, all those guys are basically around a point per possession in ISO, which is a great number. It's like, you know, all of them are like 75th percentile or higher in the league. But I do think the context there matters in that a lot of those ISOs, especially for Chris Paul, are like getting big guys switched onto onto them um, and dusting those guys. And there isn't really anybody like that that you can exploit in that way on the Rockets. So that makes it a little bit more difficult. I think for, for Paul in particular, like I think Shea can still dust anybody in isolation pretty much. Uh, and honestly, Schroeder can too. Like Schroeder's mad quick. Um, and Gallo is a little bit different in that you maybe try to like hunt like big, small switches for him and have him work on guys in the post and shoot over guys. And he was honestly like, of all those Thunder players, he dealt the best, I think, with the switching in that game one. So it definitely short circuits their offense. Um, and I guess we'll just have to see how that plays out. But like, I didn't overall, man, the Thunder offense wasn't that bad in the game. They just got shredded at the defensive end. And I don't know what they were doing, but they're, they're, they got completely destroyed by James Harden and like they didn't seem to have a plan for him at all because it's not like they were throwing these aggressive blitzes at him. It's just that like anytime he would make any sort of move toward the paint, they would like like pre-rotate and and send help from like one pass away and we're just giving up like wide open corner threes. Their rotations were terrible. And it's like you get no benefit of like they're, they're playing their three guard lineup, which ostensibly should be buzzing around, like creating pressure, creating turnovers, but it's not. Um, you're not applying pressure on Harden and you're still giving up these open threes. So the Rockets end up shooting 52 threes and hitting 20 of them. And the Thunder only turned them over seven times. So I, I don't really know what their defensive strategy was, but like they need to go back to the drawing board because it was embarrassing. Yeah, and I like Lou Dort being out is tough for them because he was definitely going to be their primary Harden uh, defender, and without him, they just like don't really have anybody with the physical profile to handle that matchup. But um, they got to do better than what they did because uh, they they just like seem like they didn't have a plan at all. Yeah, as most teams tend to look after getting lit up by James Harden. All right, well, one game in the books for all eight series. By the time we are back here, probably next week, maybe a couple series will be done. Some might be on their way to going the distance, but we will have much more to gauge from each series. Um, you know, maybe some more NBA news we can touch on when we reconvene as well, whether it's, you know, Alvin Gentry being fired. I know it'll be a long way away a week from now, but we can always come back to that um, and any other news that happens between now and then, as well as the results that will follow in the bubble itself. So for another week of Pound the Rock, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. 